Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to episode 301 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. I hope, like all supporters of the UK's finest football team, the Mighty Leeds United, you're having a great week. Today I was going to cover the investigation into the case I covered last week, the murder, if you recall, of six people at the Heights Bar in Northern Ireland. But you know, life is too short to spend another week reading all the unpleasant messages from people who appear to be so filled with hate. So I'm not going to cover it today. I'm sorry if you were looking forward to hearing the story in podcast form, but the long and short of a very complex story is that nobody has been charged with any crime and the families are still awaiting justice. Instead, we head to the southwest of England. Today's story comes from the Exeter area and looks at a most remarkable, remarkable case as detectives try to solve a baffling murder. Thank you, Robert Buckfield, for suggesting I cover this story. As always, let me begin by thanking all my supporters at Patreon, but especially the new members of this community. That is Sabina DiMarco, Harley Q, Terry Fremantle, David Hellowell, Andrea Lindenberg, and Robert Buckfield. Thank you all so much for your support. This week's episode is brought to you by Picture the Scene, a true crime podcast aimed at putting you, the listener, at the scene of the crime. Hosted by Rachel and Andy and released every two weeks, they focus mainly on the lesser-known crimes from the UK and Ireland and occasionally worldwide. There were 25 episodes so far with all sorts of crimes covered. Some recent ones were a beheading in Sheffield, a killer granny from a small village or a poisoning in London. You can listen to Picture the Scene wherever you listen to your podcasts. Take a listen. Rachel and Andy are great. I really recommend it. Okay, so it's time for the Guest of the Month and Year game. Exciting or what? At number three in the UK charts was Chipolata Pete with Mysterious Girl. How Do You Want It? from Tupac. Top the US charts. And in Australia, top of the album charts was the Macarena from Los Del Rio. Yeah, yeah, we both know you've danced to it before. In the news this month, Hotmail, a free internet email service began. Nelson Mandela stepped down as president of South Africa. The Paris-bound flight TWA-800 exploded off the coast of Long Island, New York, killing all 230 on board the Boeing 747. Charismatic and highly interesting football pundit Alan Shearer became the most expensive footballer in the world in a £15 million transfer from Blackburn to Newcastle. And in UK true crime news, 31-year-old Howard Hughes was found guilty of the utterly horrendous murder of Sophie Hook in Landidno, North Wales, 
and sent to prison with the judge recommending he should never be released. Did you guess the month and year? It was July 1996. Today's story takes us to the waters of the English Channel off the southwest coast not far from Exeter. It was the 28th of July 1996 when the trawler Malkerry dropped their nets around six miles off Tynemouth. When they checked their trawl, the nets were heavy and the fishermen were excited to see just what they had caught. But this excitement quickly turned to horror as the nets contained the fully clothed body of a middle-aged man. They returned to shore and called the police. If you know South Devon, you'll know that in summer it is packed with people on the water in a variety of craft. The police thought that this man had maybe had an accident in a boat of some description, or maybe he'd fallen from the not insignificant cliffs on parts of this coast. And that looked likely as the man did have a number of injuries on his head and body, which could have been caused by falling into the water. But then again, it couldn't be discounted that the man had been the victim of foul play. But the police firstly had to identify the man which wasn't easy. He had no ID on him at all, and although he was clothed, there was nothing in any of his pockets. And on his wrist was a super expensive looking Rolex Oyster watch. You may know that all Rolex watches have serial numbers which can be checked with the company to work out just when it was bought or repaired. And although it took six weeks or so, officers soon had the name of the dead man. He was 51-year-old Ronald Joseph Platt. He had twice taken his watch to Harrogate in Yorkshire in the 1980s, but at the time of his death he was living further south and was renting a house at Wood and Walter near Chelmsford in Essex. When they contacted the landlord of the house, he passed on the name and contact details of Ronald's close pal, David Davis. No, not that one. A detective called him, and it was a very strange call. He was very nice and polite, but there was no emotion when he was told that his best friend had been killed, and no questions about what had happened. Now, if that was you, I'm sure there were lots of things you'd want to know, right? It was a weird call, but we all react in different ways to terrible news, so maybe that was it, maybe there was nothing else in it. A bit later, the police tried to contact David again to find out more about Ronald, but they were unable to get hold of him, so a detective travelled to Essex to speak to him face to face. There were only four houses on the road where David lived. They didn't have numbers on the door, just names that were all similar. You know the sort of place. So the officer decided to knock on all the doors. First up, an elderly couple opened the door and told detectives that their next door neighbour wasn't David Davis, but it was Platt. It was Ronald Platt. Thinking there must be some sort of mistake, the detective asked again, but the answer was the same. Something wasn't right here with this David Davis. And the police started trying to figure out just what was going on. Was he trying to take Ronald's identity? Is that what it was? The neighbours told the police officer that David Davis had moved to Essex with his much younger wife and two young children. 
He was a keen sailor and they thought he had a boat somewhere on the south coast, but they didn't know quite where or what sort of boat it was. Could he potentially have taken Ronald Platt out on this boat and killed him there? It was a possibility, but there were so many scenarios to consider and none really made sense at this stage. And then, on cue, detectives received a phone call from Ronald's ex-girlfriend, Elaine Boyce. She'd been in contact with David Davis, and she feared he had killed him, and that her life was also in danger. And she helped detectives fill in a lot of the gaps. Elaine told how Ronald was a warm, loving, and mild-mannered man who worked as a TV repairman when she met him in Harrogate and they soon became a couple. Elaine said how Ronald loved his Rolex watch, and he would never take it off, even when he was swimming, in the bath, or in bed. She explained how she'd first met David Davis in 1991 at an auction. He seemed a sharp guy, a wealthy businessman, and he was charming as they chatted. By the end of the conversation, he seemed quite taken with Elaine, and he wanted to offer her a job. Elaine told David that Ronald had been born in Canada and the couple were planning to relocate to start a new life there, so the timing was wrong. But David wasn't bothered by this at all. In fact, he even said he would help to arrange this. So Elaine took a job with David, who paid her well, and he was a great boss. Ronald and David also became firm friends and the three socialised a lot together. Soon David wanted to employ Ronald too, which he did. He said that his ex-wife was chasing him for cash, and so it was just much easier if he was hands-off in all the financial arrangements. And this was just fine for Ronald and Elaine, who couldn't believe their luck. He would often send the couple off to Europe to look at potential property to purchase, although none of these trips ever seemed to result in transactions. Often. David would ask Elaine to help him out by depositing large sums of cash into one of the many foreign bank accounts that David held. Maybe at the time Elaine and Ronald did have some suspicions about exactly what they were doing, maybe they didn't. But either way, it was a great lifestyle being paid handsomely to travel all over Europe. On Christmas Day 1992, the couple spent it with David and his daughter Noel. And during the day, he presented the couple with a gift of two plane tickets to Canada so they could finally start their new life together. He said he still wanted to employ the couple and he took prints of Ronald's signature he could use and also asked him to leave some documents behind for whilst he was away. Of course, as you are listening to a true crime podcast, this behaviour is all very odd and it smacks, doesn't it, of stealing someone's identity. But Elaine and Ronald trusted David. He'd been very good to them after all. And they were quite happy to do as he asked. But life in Canada was tough for the couple. And it wasn't quite the happy ever after they dreamt of. And the couple parted ways. Not long after, Elaine came back to England for a wedding. And when she was there, she bumped into David Davis again and told him about their experiences in Canada. She told him that Ronald was still there, that she was going to return to England permanently as she really missed her friends and her family. 
David told her it was a real shame and he strongly suggested that she went back to Canada to try to rectify things with Ronald. But this wasn't what Elaine had in mind at all and she took no notice. This wedding was in 1993 and it wasn't until 1996 when out of the blue David Davis contacted her again. They didn't speak before that. By now she knew that Ronald was dead and she knew that David Davis knew too. But he didn't mention it during their meeting. And he lied to her. He said he no longer heard from Ronald. She wasn't sure why he did this, but it was unnerving. And when he asked to see her again, she seriously thought about not meeting, fearing that her life was in danger, as she strongly suspected from how he behaved that he may have been responsible for Ronald's death. She didn't want to believe it, but she couldn't escape that feeling. On this second meeting, David was now tearful, saying how devastated he was by the news of Ronald's death, but Elaine wasn't buying it, and she phoned the police. Detectives had been keeping an eye on David Davis over the preceding weeks, but they now arrested him and thoroughly searched his house. What they found was surprising to say the least. Expensive paintings, gold bars and half a million dollars worth of cash and lots of photos. So just who was this man? Detectives contacted Interpol who knew him very well. His name was Albert Johnson Walker. He'd been born in Canada in 1946 and after dropping out of high school he worked in a bank and on the side he helped others fill in their tax returns. He was bright, charming and good with finance and set up a bookkeeping business, Walker Financial Services Incorporated. Over the next few years, the company grew to six offices and over 30 employees. But Walker had been carrying out widespread fraud. In fact, he defrauded over 70 Canadian clients of $3.2 million and to escape this mess in 1990, he came to the UK with the middle of his three daughters. In 1993, Walker, in his absence, was charged in Canada with 18 counts of fraud, theft and money laundering, and was wanted by both the Canadian authorities and Interpol. It transpired that the name he had taken, David Davis, was actually one of those fraud victims. Okay, so we now get to a tricky bit in the story. His daughter whose real name was Sheena, lived with Walker in the UK and he told everyone they were husband and wife. And whilst in the UK with him, she had two young daughters. I think it's fair just to say that it's never been established for sure exactly who was the father of these two children. Walker wasn't saying and nor was Sheena. But Walker was enjoying his new life in England living under the identity of Ronald Platt. So it was such a tremendous shock for him when he saw Elaine Boys at the wedding. He moved south to move away from there to Devon, but then back to Essex, where he lived a great life. He was seen as a really strong entrepreneur. But then in 1995, the real Ronald Platt moved back to Essex from Canada. He had financial problems out there and he needed to come home. Walker knew straight away that this put everything at risk and he didn't want to take off again and start all over again. 
He was enjoying his life, and so his solution was to kill Ronald. Let's return to the police investigation. The search of Walker's home had revealed a number of photos, and from one of these his boat was identified, the 24-foot Lady Jane. And one of the officers, luckily, knew exactly where Walker kept the boat, at Dittisham in the River Dart, near to Exeter, on the southwest coast of England. They were now almost certain that he'd invited Ronald on a fishing trip on his boat and killed him. But how could they prove it? The lead detective on the case was Detective Superintendent Phil Sinek, who picks up what happened next. We seized a whole vanload of documentation from Walker's house, and among it all was a two-inch square sales receipt, which showed that he'd purchased on a Barclay card an anchor. Detectives also found that this anchor wasn't suitable for his yacht, and they believed it was bought as a murder weapon, and Ronald had died after being attacked on the back of the head with the anchor knocking him unconscious. The fisherman who found Ronald initially hadn't mentioned that the body was found with an anchor tucked into the belt of the trousers as they wanted to sell it privately. But when detectives visited them later in the inquiry, they spoke openly about the anchor and now it all made sense. Back to Detective Sinnott. We proved that his yacht was at sea at the material time. For the first time in any case, we took the yacht's GPS navigation system back to its manufacturers and they were able to plot coordinates which gave us the time and date it had been switched off and proved it had been very near to where Mr Platt's body had been found. Tests on the Rolex watch established it would have taken 44 hours to wind down. The watch stopped on June the 22nd, which meant that he had died on June the 20th. From the GPS, we could put Walker's boat in the area on June the 20th. Inside the cabin were some cushions, on which we found some head hairs. DNA tests proved that they were from the deceased man. And forensic tests found zinc traces from the anchor on Mr Platt's belt and traces of leather on the anchor. On the 27th of April 1998, Albert Walker pleaded not guilty in his murder trial at Exeter Crown Court. He told the court that he had been economical with the truth, but insisted that I did not murder Ronald Platt, he was a friend of mine. Sheena Walker was 22 when she gave evidence against her dad, saying, My father suggested that because there was a small child, we should present ourselves as a couple. The jury didn't agree with Albert Walker's account, and he was found guilty of murder. Sentencing him to life in prison, the judge told him, It was in my judgment a callous, premeditated killing designed to eliminate a man you would use for your own selfish ends. The judge said that Walker found Mr Platt firstly inconvenient, then increasingly a possible threat to your continued freedom. He became not merely expendable, but a danger to you and he had to die. The killing was carefully planned and cunningly executed with chilling efficiency. After the trial, Detective Sinek spoke again, saying how they believed Walker would have been prepared to move again if he'd been apprehended. In case anything went wrong, he was converting a lot of his cash into gold bars and secreting them 
So if he had to do a runner, he'd have had something to survive on in case his identity had blown out. For six years he managed to evade capture and he was no fool. He was very clever and was probably the most accomplished common and persuasive person I've ever met. But at the same time, it must be remembered that it was also a calculated and premeditated murder. In 2005, Walker was moved to a Canadian prison to be closer to his family. He was also sent to prison for an extra four years for the crimes he carried out in Canada. As we speak today, at the end of August 2022, Walker is still alive, aged 75, in prison in Canada. Speaking after his move to Canada, his daughter Sheena said of her dad, I just feel powerless in the whole situation. No one had asked her how she felt about her dad returning to Canada, where she lived with her two young children. She said, I'm trying to put it behind me, but as I say, every time it comes up, I have to relive it. I believe he's a dangerous individual. I'm scared of him and feel very threatened by his presence here in Canada. I don't want any contact with him. I want to move on with the rest of my life and have some closure on this. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's really quite a story, isn't it? Firstly, we have to say well done to the police for a great investigation. It seems that after a life of financial crime, Albert Walker really didn't want to up sticks and start all over again. And because of this, Ronald Platt, who had no idea, no idea at all about the danger he was in, was the man who was killed so that Walker could continue his life. And it was almost the perfect crime. Almost. It was that purchase, wasn't it, of the anchor that really led to him being convicted. That small detail. And how many times do we hear similar on this podcast? However sophisticated a criminal is, it's almost impossible to commit the perfect murder, isn't it? Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK True Crime, please head to the Facebook group. Just search UK True Crime and you will find over 83,000 of us ready to chat UK True Crime 24-7, 365 days a year. And to support the show, please head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Over 50 bonus episodes, another this week, and a ton of exclusive content, competitions, and other bits and pieces. You can join Patreon for as little as £1 a month and cancel at any time, not that you will ever want to. Of course. So just head to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. Also, our UK show, How to Commit the Perfect Murder and Totally Balls It Up, rocks up in Manchester on the 4th of October. Amazingly, we're not sold out yet. So please get the link from the show notes or any of my social channels and come and join us there. It's going to be a blast. Okay, so that's all for me for another week. So I'll speak to you again on Tuesday for another story from the UK's 37th most popular true crime host. Until we speak next Tuesday, avoid the tedium of the Kings of Leon on the radio, take it easy, and despite all the others, stay classy.
Cheerio for now. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.